0: Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, let's welcome Dr. Jerry Zimmerman, professor of the Simon School of Business at the University of Rochester. Jerry, welcome. About the book, why don't you give a little bit about your own personal background, uh, and how you ended up where you are now?
1: I uh, got my PhD in uh, economics and business uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, too many years to go to name. Uh, since then, I've been uh, teaching at the University of Rochester for over forty-five years until I stopped teaching and moved to Denver in uh, 2015. My career at the University of Rochester. Uh, focused on uh, how uh, firms, legal firms, uh, solve the uh, the incentive problems of motivating self-interested employees to pursue the firm's goals, or what's called the corporate governance problem. And, and as, a, as, acad- as an academic, almost all of my research looked at, at this what we call the control problem, and uh, uh, all of my research focused on lawful firms, published a number of books, uh, lots of research papers, uh, and uh, I've always been very interested in uh, organized crime, and so when I uh, stopped teaching, I decided to take my avocation in criminal syndicates and apply my academic training to understand how they solve the corporate governance problem.
0: So that's why you wrote this book?
1: That's it. And, and,
0: and what are the three things you'd like readers to walk away from if, that, if they buy
1: this book? What would you like them to walk away with? What I'd like them to walk away with is the same thing I'd like my students to walk away with, and that is uh, you know, how do you solve the problem Uh, motivating, attracting, and retaining self-interested people to work in the organization. And and the the key takeaway is that the same principles that we teach lawful managers, unlawful criminal bosses figured this out on their own. They never went to the Wharton School or the the University of Rochester. They figured it out themselves. And these same principles can be applied by lawful managers using... Uh, these uh, four crime syndicates as extended case studies.
0: Well, I'm sure Morton, we've graduated our share of gangsters, even if they
1: are supposedly
0: on the right side of the law, for sure. Uh, Which gangsters past and present were you most impressed with from your research with and why?
1: Uh, Well, I focus on these four crime syndicates and starting with the mafia, and Joe Bonanno, who started and headed the Bonanno family in the 20s, uh, basically was running that family through the 80s. Um, when you think about it, uh, 50 years of being CEO is pretty remarkable. Um, the, the other guy who, uh, while we never can condone the violence of these syndicates, you have to marvel at their ingenuity in that was certainly El Chapo. Uh, you know, this this was an uneducated uh, peasant from Sinaloa, Mexico, who created and ran the world's largest drug organization that was a multinational company. And uh, he was arrested numerous, several times. He figured out how to get out of prisons and... Uh, uh, now, fortunately, he is a co-resident of mine in Colorado, and he's in a uh, federally uh, federal maximum security pr- uh, prison in, uh, outside of Denver.
0: Well, it sounds to me like you need to reach out to him to develop a leadership book um, <laughs> from him and interview him because he's got plenty of time on his hands. But I think he only gets like an hour a day at Sunshine, Right. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding. So one of the things I'm curious about with any of these guys is their ability that you talk about, which is to think about things. You mentioned the book, The Most Vital Function of a Leader is Thinking. Why that over marketing, sales, or innovation?
1: Uh, Well, I view marketing, sales, uh, and to some extent, innovation as the tactics uh, but before you get the tactics you have to understand what what your strategy is and you have to have people in the organization who can help the CEO run uh, an effective strategy leadership team because the, the CEO doesn't know everything. so he has to assemble the right people he has to give them the incentives uh, and uh, to, you know to, to implement these and so once uh, the CEO thinks long-term, uh, then he relies on the people below him to do the marketing, to do the sales, and, and even come up with innovative uh, products and services.
0: Is there much of a difference between management styles, between Latin American drug cartels, American mafia, motorcycle gangs, street gangs, Chinese triads, Japanese Yakuza, I guess Eastern European Russian mobs. Is there? Do they all operate the same way, or are there differences in style that we can learn something
1: from? Well, you know, they are all very different. Just as when you think about the incentives and the culture of uh, of uh, Amazon or Southwest Airlines, they all have different compensation plans. They all have different incentive schemes. Uh, they di- all have different cultures but they all have the same four pillars. The four pillars are different, but they all have the same four pillars. So, uh, and, and it starts with a strategy. The Sinaloa cartel strategy was to smuggle drugs across the U.S.-Mexican border. And that's a different strategy than the Hells Angels, uh, which is a motorcycle club that uh, uh, some of the, these clubs have criminals in them. Uh, the uh, the American mafia uh, had specialized uh, by vices uh, so during prohibition. All of them were bootlegging. Once prohibition changed, they then had to go find other illegal rackets. And as they did that, they had to construct different uh, incentive schemes to motivate those people, whether they were infiltrating and corrupting Wall Street, or whether they were uh, stealing gasoline taxes from the state of New York.
0: Well, they probably would have learned a lot and liked to have Bernie Madoff as one of their made guys uh, (laughs) to work with, that's for sure. And we've seen lots of those folks on Wall Street. Did you find from studying and possibly interviewing gang leaders that they really are, uh, that they're really enlightened ones and read management books and Tried to
1: take ideas from legitimate world? No, <laughs> I mean they they figured this out on their own. Uh, uh, the best example is uh, Lucky Luciano, who uh, survived uh, major gang wars in the twenties, and he had you know he realized the gang wars um, uh, among the five families was bad for business because it's it's hard to do uh, vice crimes if everyone's hiding in their basements. Uh, And so he figured out he needed to form a cartel, much like OPEC, uh, in order to get the five families to stop warring with each other and to uh, figure out a way of solving their their conflicts of interest. They couldn't go to the courts, uh, so he formed this thing called the Commission which each of the five family bosses sat on, and they had very detailed rules that they couldn't kill uh, made men in other families without the, the assent of the, the commission. Uh, they couldn't operate uh, outside of their own territories in in the five boroughs. And, uh, and so he, I can't say this with certainty, but I doubt if Lucky Luciano Uh, went to Wharton and read management books. He just figured this stuff out.
0: I'm wondering if the modern day uh, dons and heads of cartels who now employ lots of college graduates themselves, do you think that they read management books? No. (laughs) When uh, I had interviewed Luis Ferrante, who was with, uh, I believe, the... Uh, Bonanno family. And I also uh, interviewed Joe Pistone, who was the FBI agent who later became Donnie Brat, who was uh, the movie Donnie Brasco was based on his life uh, in the Bonanno crime family. And they said that they felt it was easier dealing with gangsters than it was with legitimate people, that if you had a uh, if you had a problem with somebody else, you tried to uh, work it out with them. And if that didn't work out, you kicked it upstairs to your boss. And then the four of you got together. And then the next time, if that couldn't happen, they got kicked out. But if it got all the way to the top guy, well, then somebody wasn't going to walk out of there alive. But he said that so rarely happened and people so rarely got cheated that uh, everything kind of worked very harmoniously for the most part.
1: Well, you know, when, if you think about legitimate businesses and how they resolve conflicts of interest within their firm, it's very much the same sort of thing. If you have two divisions that are at somehow odds with each other, it ends up at the, uh, at the, at the maybe a vice president, senior vice president, or eventually the CEO. Conflicts of interest across corporations are resolved either through arbitration, direct negotiation, or eventually in the courts. And so legitimate businesses have a, a, a dispute resolution process that the uh, organized crime can't follow. If you look at the, what's going on in Mexico, which is just a terrible situation now, uh, they haven't been able to solve this conflict resolution. They tried to, but it broke down, much like OPEC breaks down all the time. If you try and form a cartel, there's incentives that are often strong to cheat. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the amazing thing to me was that the mafia and even the Hell's Angels uh, figured out a way of having a, a version of a, you can think of it as a Supreme Court, or you can think of it as a board of directors, they, they solve those problems uh, uh, internally. And um, so conflict resolution is an important part of both lawful and unlawful organizations.
0: One of the things, I read Joe Bonanno's Joe biography myself as well, and you had mentioned uh, that he ran the Bonanno family for roughly uh, 50 years. And, and in some cases, they say he ran it for 36 years and was retired for 36 years. But eventually, he was pushed out the door of his own family. What, what, what went wrong for somebody who survived at the top for so long and what can we learn from that, especially for people who are hoping to have longevity as CEOs of their companies?
1: I tried to figure that out. And uh, it the evidence is a bit sketchy about what went wrong there. Uh, you know, he was whisked off the streets of New York City and held somewhere for three weeks until he was released. And this was right before he was um you know, this was right before he was scheduled to testify before a federal grand jury. You know, I, I don't know this, I'm just conjecturing, but uh, he may have got rubbed the, some people the wrong way. It's just politics. Uh, you know, it's a similar, not identical, but similar process that we're observing with Andrew Cuomo in New York City. He may have gotten too arrogant This a Joe Bonanno. A few years later, he wrote this tell-all book that really got a lot of mafioso upset. And it really, his book was the roadmap that Rudy Giuliani used to take down uh, the mafia family. So I suspect that he must have started rubbing some people the wrong way. And, and
0: that happens in major corporations as well, where people feel like you've outlived your usefulness or you're not forward thinking enough. Right.
1: That's right. You know, and another conjecture is uh, during the 60s, the mob had this uh, debate, if you want to call it that, uh, over whether or not they should uh, go into the business of selling drugs. And Joe Bonanno that he was a firm believer that drugs was not a good business for them to be in because uh, most of the mob's businesses, uh, prostitution and gambling, in some ways were not terribly victim hurtful crimes. They were supplying an illegal banned service or substance uh, and and Bonanno thought that um, uh, drugs uh, would change the culture and the public's view of, of the, his family. And other families were doing drugs. And I suspect that that might have been part of the po- political problems that Bonanno faced.
0: And isn't true, you know, in his particular case, um, there was too much money to be made and to attract the best performers. They were going uh, to lose people if they wouldn't get into the drug business because the amounts of money that can be made were astronomical, Yep. And so, isn't that kind of similar to what happens in the real business world when CEOs stop um, innovating and looking at the next opportunities? You know, like uh, the car companies now uh, going going forward and developing electric cars, where it took Elon Musk to really push them over the edge and realize, my gosh, look how. What the valuation he's getting on his company, and he has a fraction of sales in ours. And look what kind of engineers he's attracting, and we can't attract those same people. So is there something similar
1: to that? I think so. Um, living in Rochester for over forty-five years, I watched the decline of Kodak. And Kodak knew the the top executives at, at Kodak knew that digital imaging was coming. And they tried a lot of things to move into that space. Uh, but one of the uh, stories you hear all the time is that there was a lot of resistance inside of Kodak to going full bore because that would cannibalize their traditional lines of business. And so, you know, whether or not Kodak could have gone into the digital imaging business and compete with the Sonys and the Nikons. Uh, and the cannons, I'm not sure they could have done that even if they wanted to, just because Kodak was a chemical company. It was a, an, a mechanical engineering company. They were very good at coding films and papers uh, with silver halide, uh, and they couldn't attract the top engineers and the talents, much to your, akin to the way Elon Musk has been able to, to attract the top computer scientists, and engineers to develop and build uh, electric vehicles.
0: In your book, you talk about strategy, incentive, alignment problem. Can you talk about that concept?
1: I'd love to. Um, At the heart of all economics is the basic assumption that people are self-interested. And moreover, not only are they self-interested, but they're resourceful, uh, they're evaluative, they're maximizing people who care about their own self-interest. And when you hire somebody into an organization, you have to figure out how do I create incentives for that person to come to work every day and work in the company's interests and not their own self interest. And that's basically uh, the problem of how do we align the incentives of this workforce we've assembled to achieve the goals and the strategy of the organization. And this is a, this, Basic economic problem that we address in MBA programs and business schools uh, about uh, aligning the strategy with the incentive of the the employees. And right now,
0: which of the companies do you think does this best right now?
1: Well, you look at uh, the, the 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 tech leaders, or even Southwest Airlines, REI, the Google, Amazon. Uh, you look at the way Jeff Bezos has uh, transformed what started out as an online book selling website out of his garage into now the world's leader in cloud computing. They are, they've completely disrupted book publishing. And the way that he's been able to evolve his, his online platforms to uh, create enormous values uh, so you know he's 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 done it, uh, and uh, uh, Elon Musk has done it in a very different way. Jeff Bezos is a very hands-off, decentralized manager, whereas Elon Musk is a very centralized, uh, top-down leader. Both of them are successful, and so the other takeaway from this book. Uh, is that one size doesn't fit all. This notion of benchmarking uh, where you compare where you try and copy other successful businesses is is not a route to success because every firm has a different strategy and therefore it has to have a different set of incentives, uh, organization chart, decentralization, centralization and so don't merely copy, uh, what the mafia does, because it's not going to apply uh, to, uh, let's say, a um, uh, a Tesla. And so that's the other key takeaway from this book. One size doesn't fit all.
0: So I'm, I'm going to get into You start to allude to it in the beginning of this conversation. You write about the four pillars that organized crime enterprises utilize. Can you, uh, you start to talk about, but can you tell us what those four uh,
1: four pillars are? Sure, uh, every every organization has to uh, have an organization chart, uh, which basically assigns tasks to different divisions and ultimately to individuals in the organization. So the first pillar is what I call the task assignment pillar, who does what? Second pillar is once you give a task to somebody, how do you motivate them to pursue those tasks in the organization's best interest. Uh, Once you measure their performance, which is one part of creating the incentives, you then have to reward them. Just measuring someone on on some metric doesn't necessarily give them incentives unless there's some real pecuniary or non-pecuniary benefit for pursuing it. And then the fourth pillar is the corporate culture, which is how do we do things in this organization? It's basically a set of norms, behaviors, and uh, uh, visions uh, that everyone buys into. So when you think about FedEx, uh, you know, it's, its motto is, it has to get there overnight. Or at one time Ford's motto was uh, for uh, quality one. And so the culture is the way of communicating the values, norms, and behaviors to everyone in the organization. And so those four pillars have to be there. And more importantly, they have to be coordinated with each, each other. They have to reinforce each other. They can't conflict.
0: You mentioned in the book that every organization has smart, creative people that try to game the system. How do criminal enterprises control it and aside from killing people, how can companies ensure focus on the best interest of the organization and not just themselves?
1: Well, uh, let, let's take the mafia since I think they did this the best. Um, uh, they, in, in the book, I, I actually, from uh, 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 Joe Pistone's uh, book, he talks about every every day his crew would get together at some bar or club, and they'd sit around all day uh, thinking of of crimes to do. Well, the mere fact that you're sitting there uh, with your associates, you're basically monitoring what they're doing. If they're with you, they can't be talking to law enforcement. And so they're monitoring each other. Uh, And they're also building camaraderie, which is part of the culture. So a key Part of the culture of this uh, of these uh, mafia families was these local uh, gr- crews would would, uh, would, mon- would would sit around and observe what everyone was doing. You know they, they observed uh, how much cash everyone had. And if somebody had too much cash or more cash than they, they thought they should have, that was a red flag. So it was much like corporations that have whistleblower programs. The mafia figured out a whistleblower program of these sit downs and these, uh, these uh, daily uh, club events where they would play poker and chit chat and, and keep an eye on each other.
0: <laughs> the Godfather movies uh, were mentioned in the book and you wrote about Don Corione, one of my favorite characters. Uh, a reasonable man and at times had to be ruthless. Can a leader be respected if they aren't ruthless, both in the world, in that world, and in the legitimate one? I think
1: ruthless is a pejorative term. If you look at, at CEOs uh, and leaders, uh, successful, lawful leaders, uh, many of them are very ruthless, uh, although I wouldn't like to use that term. You know, they have to make hard decisions. Uh, they have to decide which divisions are no longer performing, or which divisions are not uh, the right fit, and, are. and uh, so you, you you observe spinoffs, you observe sales uh, divestitures, uh, you also observe people being fired in companies. Uh, I, I like the story of Don, of um, the former CEO of uh, Xerox. Uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, it'll probably pop in. But um, back in the 70s, Xerox came out with its first line of electronic copiers. And the quality problems were absolutely terrible. And he couldn't figure out why. And so after much study, he decided they needed uh, to do a total quality management program at Xerox. David Kearns was his name. And he grew up on this. And... He tried to get people uh, on the bus, old time Xerox people who had been there on the bus to adopt total quality management. And some of them just didn't either didn't understand it or couldn't do it. And so he had to get rid of them. Uh, and was that ruthless or just smart business? And I, David was a very successful CEO who, who knew how to get things done. Um, do criminal enterprises succeed even with
0: poor management if the product is very much in demand like drugs? Because I'm thinking that the drugs sell themselves. And in the real world, Steve Ballmer was very mediocre during his 10 years of running uh, Microsoft, and yet they still put away billions and billions of dollars. I guess they have you know over $100 billion in cash now. So, can you still be profitable and make a lot of money, even if the management is not particularly good? What did you learn?
1: Well, you know, I, I think Microsoft uh, versus the drug cartels is an interesting comparison. Uh, the drugs do sell themselves. But uh, in the case of Microsoft, uh, there's a, a fairly high uh, cost of m- moving away from a Microsoft Windows-based computer system, and so those uh, uh, transaction costs of shifting are going to keep people on the Microsoft platform because there really wasn't a very easy way to switch off of that. We see the same thing uh, with with Apple iPhones that people are very, you can say, loyal because they know the system, they're comfortable with it, and and a lot of people don't want to incur the cost of moving from an iPhone to Android device drugs sell themselves and so people don't care whether or not they buy the drugs from let's say the Sinaloa cartel or some or from the Tijuana cartel uh, and so the the cartel that is best able to get the drugs across the country is going to succeed and so there they, they there really is a, a difference there and it has to do with switching costs yeah I,
0: and I, I'm, I'm Imagine that, of course, that happens every day in corporate America where you end up staying with some particular product or service or um, law firm, accounting firm because the switching costs are too much. And yet, those companies still keep continuing to pile up the money until someone builds a better uh, product and then they cease to exist. Like BlackBerry, what happened to BlackBerry? They dominated.
1: Uh, they did, but they they couldn't innovate. They couldn't end up competing with uh, smartphones. And and does that happen also in the world of
0: organized crime? That if you don't keep innovating there, and and you talk about innovation, um, how criminal enterprises encourage? How do criminal enterprises actually encourage innovation and attract uh, smart people? You give a great example using the Sinaloa cartel in the book. So can you,
1: can you talk a little bit about that? El Chapo Guzman um, was incredibly uh, smart, and I, 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 I'm not heroizing him. And, and, you know, my co-author and I uh, abhor the violence and, and the damage that his product does to society and to the Mexican uh, people. Uh, but uh, you have to step back and understand that, you know, this guy was incredibly innovative when it came to smuggling techniques. You know, he was the master of building tunnels under the border. Uh, he was a master at figuring out how to get the thing, the drugs into the country by packing them uh, in cans of Mex of uh, chili. Uh, he was a master at uh, Taking uh, railroad uh, tank cars and fitting them with concealed compartments, where he could put the drugs in, ship them to Chicago, and then uh, get them out of those containers. Uh, he was very innovative because here was he—he he saw that the oxycodone um, uh, uh, problem of the pill mills, the illegal prescriptions that were being written in, in Florida and other uh, states, uh, he saw that that was being cracked down on and he knew that there was gonna be this huge demand uh, by these addicts for an alternative form of, um, of uh, heroin, uh, of opioids. And so he, he brought in Colombian uh, chemists. And he learned how to, he developed an R&D process where he was able to convert Mexican low quality heroin into high quality Mexican heroin that could be a substitute for uh, the uh, oxycotton. And uh, fentanyl, and and he he innovated there. I, I I hate the way he innovated, and I it it's just a terrible tragedy about the drug addiction problem we have in the U.S. Uh, but he he was just as innovative as Steve Jobs was in terms of seeing a demand and how the market changes and and how to respond to it.
0: Well, too bad I can't invite him to the Angel Venture Fair and be our keynote speaker. Uh, this year, but maybe we can do it through Zoom with him and uh, get his input on how he would be able to build it, which brings me to another thing about Al Chapo. Uh, According to your book, he essentially employs about 150,000 people uh, worldwide, making him one of the largest businesses in the world. What can we learn in terms of developing an international organization with so many cultures to manage and so many partnerships to manage?
1: Well, you know, the The problem I had uh, in writing the book was getting information. I did not spend a lot of time interviewing. I didn't interview any criminals. I just refused to do that. Rather, I relied on uh, public sources, newspaper articles, a lot of uh, books. Uh, And with the American Mafia, we just have a plethora of books and, and firsthand accounts, uh, from mobsters who were willing to write biographies about this. And you mentioned Joe Bonanno's book, which was a treasure trove of information about the economics of that organization. Unfortunately, Chapo and his associates never wrote books about how they ran uh, the the uh, the Sinaloa cartel. I'm sure that if anyone tried to do that Uh, they wouldn't never have gotten to the first draft before their head was on the side of some highway. (laughs) But but he had to be pretty sophisticated.
0: uh, And he wasn't multilingual as far as I know, but to be able to run a global organization like that and deal with all these cultures and be able to grow something like that, it, it had to take significant skills to be able to go and do it. Was there anything that you... Uh, observed in his skill set that allowed him to grow such an enormous company with really
1: virtually no education and learning as he went. The the sad thing about El Chapo was uh, he basically used one primary tool to run his organization and that was killing people. And by his some accounts, he personally killed two thousand people. So this was a bloodthirsty guy. Who only knew one thing, and that was power. And anyone who crossed him, he he took him out. the The mafia figured out that that was not a good way of running the business. You know, in in, the, in terms of Sinaloa, you know, it was a very poor state in Mexico, and there was basically an unlimited supply of, of uh, people, operatives for him, and if and. We talk about uh, you know, uh, systems in companies, meritocracy systems, where people who perform rise to the top. Uh, well, El Chapo had a, a similar meritocracy system, only it was people who didn't perform didn't survive, literally didn't survive. That sounds uh, like a Joe Stalin uh, management system. That is, perfect, perfect. And yeah. you know, uh, you know, lawful managers can't do that, and thankfully, but on the other hand, they do have uh, terminations. Uh, people get fired. Firing people is a traumatic event. It's not a physical violence, but it's a psychological violence, and and that's uh, the way a lot of companies um, keep people motivated, either through promotions or terminations
0: so let's talk a little bit about power paul castellano who headed the gambino family uh after carlo gambino had uh started it and i actually think that was lucky luciano's family originally and it changed over names uh until john Gotti had him killed was said to run the organization like a ceo of a fortune 500 company it wasn't just a, a power struggle between uh struggle because his predecessor ran the family successfully for 20 years. Castellano only lasted nine years. Gotti himself only lasted six years. What can we learn from the Gambino shortening of
1: leadership terms? And I understand maybe they're not as
0: powerful as they once were.
1: Well, all of the five families were pretty much decimated by Rudy Giuliano's um, uh, what were called the commission trials in the 80s. And they never really... they never really recovered from that. Uh, I'm, I'm, as a scientist, I'm a bit reluctant to draw too much conclusions or inferences based on one observation uh, that you talked about. You know, Gotti was pretty much uh, an outlier of these family bosses, that he was uh, very uh, showy. He liked publicity. The vast majority of those family bosses shunned publicity. They knew that they didn't want to be in the public eye. And Castellano was certainly in that uh, realm. I tend to view Gotti as an outlier, that he came along, he was a, he was the dapper Don, uh, he loved publicity, and uh, eventually it caught up with him.
0: Now, I guess maybe he modeled himself maybe after Al Capone, who also seemed to relish uh,
1: publicity. Uh, he did, and and again, uh, the story of Al Capone is he did himself in. Uh, you know, Al Capone uh, thought he was being a good businessman by keeping detailed profit and loss statements of all of his operations, every speakeasy, every uh, brothel. He had uh, he knew what the the free cash flows were from each of those, and and if the free cash flows weren't high enough, he would step in one way or the other. Well, these detailed records proved his undoing when the IRS count come along, seizes them, and shows that uh, he was evading taxes. So, the Feds got uh, Al Capone not because he was flashy as much as because he was stupid in keeping these detailed financial records.
0: So, let's talk about the Hell's Angels. Um, After reading the Hells Angels chapter, I was wondering what impressed you about them and what can a legitimate business learn from them?
1: The the first thing about the Hells Angels is that they're not uh, primarily a criminal organization. They're a fraternity. They attract people... Who love to ride their their Harley Davidsons. They love to go on these long motorcycle rides. They love la- they love to brawl. Uh, the vast majority of them, as I understand it, except in Canada, are not uh, the clubs are not primarily the focus of the the criminal activities. But what a a, a but they created this enormously. Uh, this enormous brand, the Hells Angels. And when you say the Hells Angels to someone, what's the first thing that pops in your mind when I say Hells Angels? Oh, I imagine uh, guys in leather jackets
0: and uh, helmets, riding motorcycles, uh, tearing apart bars. Uh, and, and, and and the patch. Yeah, right, of
1: course. Talk about their whole system. And And so to be a Hells Angel... Uh, once you're Hell's Angels, you then get the patch. If you leave the Hell's Angels, you have to give the patch up. And so ha- being able to walk around with a patch on your back signaled that you were a tough guy uh, and you don't mess with, with me because if you mess with me, you're going to mess with my brothers. And they create this enormously strong brand, even to the point that they have it um, trademarked uh, and they go to court if somebody uses the Hells Angels brand without their, their permission. And so, you know, the Hells Angels brand is as, as, as recognizable as, uh, let's say, the Southwest Airlines or, uh, you know, the REI brand. Uh, it, branding is a way of communicating what, the, what your organization's culture and, and strategy and motives are. Can you talk about the founder
0: of the Hells Angels? And this guy is still alive. He's probably like, you know, the oldest living uh, gangster that got to to tell his story. Um, Give his background and how he started the Hells Angels and what can we learn from uh,
1: Sonny- uh, Barger. Yeah. Sonny Barger. Well, this was a guy who just loved his motorcycles. Uh, He loved the camaraderie of, uh, of being a tough guy. And uh, it, was, it was only in the 70s that they started dealing drugs when cocaine came along. And he loved cocaine so much that he named his motorcycle Sweet Cocaine. Uh, and he was only selling cocaine and dealing with, uh, with uh, street pushers as a way of, of, um, of uh, satisfying his own habit. The guy never made much money by his own account he only was making five thousand, ten thousand dollars a year. He wrote a, He wrote several books. He, he was actually a consultant on some of the biker movies, Free uh, Rider, for example. And you, you know, you at when, when he was when he was uh, uh, arrested and thrown in jail, he couldn't come up with a hundred thousand dollars for bail. He sat in jail for, for a year before his court trial. And uh, so to him, running a, a, a criminal organization was far less important than making money uh, or riding his bike. Making money was less important than riding his bike and partying. And you know that was his self-interest. His self-interest was being a biker and not being a criminal criminal activity was just a way to subsidize his bike riding.
0: How are the leaders trained in the mafia, cartels, and motorcycle gangs? Do they have any kind of formal training process? And is there anything we can learn from that?
1: Yeah, uh, both the Hells Angels uh, and the um, mafia, uh, again, uh, used a Training model a meritocracy training model that guys, let's start with the the, the mafia. Uh, guys would would become associates with uh, made men, and these made men ran small crews. and And guys who were successful, uh, much like the Peter Principle, uh, would get promoted to be a made man in in a formal initiation rite where they would crook their finger and pledge loyalty to the family. And those guys who were good and loyal. Loyal was a, was probably more important than being able to generate a lot of cash. Being loyal to the family. If the boss called you up one, at two o'clock in the morning and said, I want you to go beat up some guy, you did it. You didn't ask why. And so guys who were loyal, guys who were successful uh, would be promoted uh, from associate to a maidman, man, then from a maidman man to a captain. And eventually to be be boss, and so there was this strong uh, incentive to uh, to perform in both cash generating and loyalty. Uh, Sonny Barger had a similar system in the Hell's Angels. That again, they they would have uh, hangarounds who would then be admitted to the the chapter, and and those guys who were tough and um, were good at fighting would be promoted to become like Sergeant at Arms, uh, and, or to eventually become president of their clubs. And so it's very much the same incentive systems within lawful organizations that people have strong incentives who want to get promoted, to get ahead, to make more money, uh, do things, uh, in order to advance the interests of their organization.
0: Uh, Are... is there progress in organized crime in terms of women's roles in their world? I mean, what, how are they dealing with that? And how can you know, regular corporate America learn something from them about how they're dealing with that? Because I understand there are now women who are running some of the drug cartels.
1: That was one of the most fascinating things and probably the most controversial thing in, in the book was I raised the question in, in the four crime families, including the Bloods and the Crips. Uh, which we haven't talked about, uh, female members were excluded. Sonny Barger explicitly had a rule that there was was not going to be any female members. The mafia would not admit uh, female members as, as made females or made uh, women. It was an all-male organization. And then the question is, as an economist, why is that the case? Uh, and, and, you know, I offer a couple of hypotheses, and these are purely hypotheses. One one is that women are less prone to violence. It's just not in their DNA. Uh, if you look at murder rates among you know, who commits most murders, it's mainly males. And so if you're running a criminal organization where you have to occasionally use violence, uh, women are not primarily the best at doing this. Uh, so that's one hypothesis. The other hypothesis is that um, uh, sexual harassment Uh, And the conflicts between males and females in in organizations over this whole uh, sexual harassment is much easier to deal with in a lawful organization. In an unlawful organization, if uh, a male or a female feels uh, jilted, well, if they go to law enforcement and spill the beans, that's devastating, and so, one way that you prevent those conflicts of interest is not to have female members. Now, the cost of that is that you have a less diverse organization. Uh, all lawful organizations see the benefits of having a diverse workforce in terms of getting different ideas and perspectives. Well, you know, <coughs> it's a cost-benefit trade-off. We economists talk about cost-benefit trade-offs all the time, and criminal organizations. Have a very different cost benefit trade off of having a diverse workforce than a lawful organization
0: I think uh, we all have kind of uh maybe not even a working knowledge, but know the names, the bloods, and the crips, and they are, I believe they started in Los Angeles. am I correct? did I read that in the book? Yes, and now they're national organizations with chapters throughout the country how did they what did you learn about these street gangs have now become, you know, rival the mafia and drug cartels.
1: Uh, that was an, a, a fascinating story that I didn't really fully understand, but uh, much like the the Hells Angels started as a fraternal organization where they were providing a lifestyle uh, for their bike riders, the Hells and Crips were uh, street gangs of uh, young Blacks, males primarily, who had no father figure. They had terrible home lives. And so they joined their street gangs in order to provide, uh, again, a fraternity, people to hang around with, father figures uh, to some extent, uh, and also safety, protection, that if you're a member of, a, of one of the, those uh, organizations, uh, one of those clubs, uh, you, you know, they, if your sister got beaten up or, assed, or assaulted, the, 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 the club would come to their defense. Uh, and so they, like the Hells Angels, did not start as a criminal organization. They did petty crime, of course. Uh, and most of them don't really sell drugs. Most of them are uh, just more, think of them as a, as a tough gang fraternity. We have a question here.
0: Um, what's one blind spot that we can learn from the drug crime leaders to help drive innovation product to advance humankind? Oh,
1: that's a great question and probably worthy of another Uh, Hour, But I think the one thing uh, that, again, the key takeaway from this book is you need these four pillars. And while you cannot copy the four pillars of the, uh, of of any of these criminal organizations, you can learn about uh, how to assign tasks to people and give them incentives to innovate. And so uh, all all organizations need these four pillars. And, and that's really w- what the bottom line is. Don't, you can't really learn anything particular about f- the four pillars uh, of any of these criminal organizations, other than they have them, they worked well, they were coordinated and they were constantly being revised as the external environment changed.
0: Um, another question that we have here is there must be something to learn about security too. These characters are very good at keeping trade secrets. Is there something to learn from these organizations about keeping corporate secrets? Uh,
1: yes. A gun always helps. A gun always helps. Yeah, gun always helps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, uh, you know, what they did was they compartmentalized uh, things. Uh, so if you look at the way the the, the mafia worked, they were, uh, you know, the Gambino family or these five families at their heights would have four or 500 members. And they were organized into small decentralized crews and no one knew what the other crews were doing. And so if one crew got busted, the trade secrets couldn't be exploited, namely who was doing what else. It was hard to flip these guys. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't until, uh, the RICO laws came along that they were able to, um, get the bosses of these families. Uh, the same thing was uh, El Chapo. He had very small cells that would move drugs through one little locality and pass them over to someone else. And so if the police, if the, the Mexican authorities busted one cell, uh, they had very limited information. It was the same thing that you know, Coca-Cola, no, very few people in Coca-Cola knew what the, the, uh, the formula was. Uh, so most companies, again, compartmentalize their trade secrets to, and things like pricing decisions and customer lists and things like that, their their secret sauce, uh, they they follow basically the same concepts as, of the mafia, and that is limit your exposure. Uh,
0: are there any TV shows or movies that mirror the actual organized crime, like, you know, The Sopranos? In fact, when I interviewed Luis Ferrante, he goes, if you want to see what our day-to-day was like, just watch The Sopranos. He said, because if you uh, if your boss called you over to speak, all the other guys were worried that you were getting ahead of them. And he said, these petty jealousies were run rampant all the time. It's like one kid's being favored over another. So is there any any shows that you think, based on your research, that Um, Meredith, i I watched Narcos on, I think, Netflix. I like that show myself.
1: Uh, Well, I just finished watching uh, some of the episodes of Drug Lords on on, uh, Netflix as well. And uh, they're all fascinating that, you know, all of them give you uh, a little window into these crime syndicates. But none of them really, in my view, uh, really get into very much depth about the organizational economic principles. And very few of them really uh, analyze the four pillars and talk about how the four pillars are used. Um, but, uh, you know, like reading crime books or watching these uh, documentaries, uh, people are just fascinated by this. And it's it it, it goes back to when I was, a young child, uh, you probably don't remember, Elliot Ness. and the Oh, I loved Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is there, after doing all this research, is there one leader that really stood out to you and said, this guy could be running a Fortune 500. He's just super smart in the way he runs his operation and the way he's grown his business. And what could we learn from that person?
1: Well, you know, we've talked about uh, Joe Bonanno, and uh, Joe Bonanno, in his book, says the the key thing in in uh, running a business is forming a monopoly. And so he had monopolies in New York City, uh, in uh, uh, in I think cheese and in linen supply. Uh, you know, they formed cartels. Probably the interesting thing to me I didn't know was uh, uh, the mafia families in New York City basically in fourth cartels among the concrete uh, companies and and the electrical trades and a lot of these trades. So they got in there by corrupting labor unions. And then once they had control of the labor unions, they were able to go to the companies that uh, hired that labor and said, look, we're going to fix the bids on con- concrete contracts. And any company uh, that violates who's going to be the low bidder uh, that we designate is going to get whacked. And so they were uh, they were doing this for a fairly small fee. They were only charging maybe three to five percent of the contract price. And so they basically used violence against the concrete companies to enforce the cartel. That's something that OPEC has never been able to do. OPEC has been rampant with cheaters. And so the mafia stepped in and said, hey, here's a business opportunity for us. Let's uh, Let's be the cartel enforcer. Hence why you got cement boots, right? Yeah.
0: So what is the future of organized crime? Um, Because as drugs, bookmaking, online gambling, prostitution have been made legal in different places. I mean, my gosh, you know, if you would have looked at this in the past, you would have uh, said to yourself, hey, wait a minute, casino gambling, that's not going to happen outside of Las Vegas and now it's everywhere. If you're going to say book bookmaking, you know, the more uh, city, state, uh, and even the federal government needs cash, they're quickly legalizing this. I saw a a column in the Wall Street Journal that says that within the next 10, no more than 20 years, every drug will be legalized in some way and it's going to put Uh, urban people who make money in urban areas uh, at a disadvantage in terms of being able to create wealth. So what do you think is going to happen to organized crime over the next 10
1: years? Well, first of all, organized crime has existed as long as mankind. And as long as people ban substances or tax them too highly, you're going to have way people coming in with Cheaper sources. So even if, if uh, drugs are eventually legalized in this country, uh, the tendency is going to be to put very high taxes on them, and uh, and that still creates an opportunity for criminals to come in and supply the same products at lower prices. We saw the same thing in moonshiners. Uh, you know, uh, w- liquor was legal prior to prohibition, but it got so highly taxed that there were still organized criminals providing it.
0: So we, we're we gonna have to adapt like uh, organized crime has because as jobs disappear for a variety of reasons, right? Because of um, climate change and so forth that they managed to adapt, we have to adapt.
1: You know, the the, the primary lesson from economics is that people are resourceful, and so whenever something comes along that constrains people, people are going to figure out ways to get around it. The classic example is when they lowered the national speed limit from 70 miles an hour to 55 miles an hour, uh, it created a whole industry of, um, of CB radios and radar detectors. Uh, we're going to see the same thing uh, occurring that, you know, once uh, we, people get vaccinated for, for COVID, uh, there's going to be uh, these uh, passports, these uh, vaccination passports that allow people to uh, move from place to place. Uh, once that happens, I predict you will find uh, criminals selling uh, p- fake passports. So uh there's always going to be innovation whenever you can f- provide a, a good or service that people demand at lower price than they can get it elsewhere. Jerry, I want to thank you so much. I really think you should work on a next book where you actually
0: interview these guys uh and and find out, you know, ask them all the different management and business questions and see what you learn. Uh, from them in person. But I really enjoyed your book. I wish you best luck with this book. And thanks, everybody, for coming on today to uh, listen to Jerry. Jerry, have a great rest of your weekend.
1: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Take care, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.